Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to Jerusalem U's The Teacher's Lounge, where we try to keep you connected with Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I'm your host, as always, Michael Lechterberg. Did I say that wrong? With my co-host, Alan Goldman. Excellent, Mike. Did a really good job. Oh, thank you. This is an on week for Mike. Uh, Alan, we have a guest again this week. Would you like to introduce our guest? I would be happy to. Our guest is Ruven Spira from the Alexander Moss High School in Israel. Um, and he's a longtime teacher of their famous core course. So uh, we're really excited for him to be here with us. He also hails from Shiloh. Um, so maybe we'll talk a little bit about that also. And just hear a little bit about what Ruvain does and see how he also looks at Israel. How you doing, Ruvain? Thank God. Thanks for asking. Thanks for coming in on a rainy, misty Jerusalem day. It's a pretty stereotypical winter day for this part of the country. It feels like it's about time. It's thank been a God. really long time. Yeah, thank God. Of course, we Jews have to build a state, and we get rained on and annoyed, and then have to feel guilty about that because we have to be happy that it's raining. Yeah. Who else yeah, could be? And feel guilty when it's a nice, sunny, warm day. Right. Right, and feel terrible, only right? In <laughs> only in the winter winds. That's true. That's true. But only we, only we could have a, neurolog- you know, a neurosis-related relationship to climate. Yeah. We, we managed to pull that off. So can you tell us what MUS is and what it does, just sort of on one foot, a sort of mini explanation? I'm sure a lot of people aren't familiar with your program. Um, Sure. The program was uh, developed by Rabbi Morris Kipper of Miami, a project of the Miami Federation. Um, I think probably the best way of explaining it is that Rabbi Kipper brought a group of uh, teenagers to Israel for a, I think, a one-month program, came back. They had a wonderful time. They came back to Miami, and he realized after a few months that they didn't really understand what they had seen. They had no context in which to make it, help, help them make it make sense. So he redesigned the Israel experience, which was based on letting the land of Israel tell its story through Jewish history. So if I was going to boil it down, I would say what we do is we teach Jewish history um, or perhaps we teach the narrative of the land of Israel by using Jewish history so that the students have a context in which to make the what they see make sense and develop a narrative that they can internalize along the way. I think if I would sharpen it also, the, the, the great chiddish um, or thing that they, they do at Mas and that they developed, which others also have, uh, have continued on, is really putting an, an ad- academic framework. To, to learning about Israel, to the Israel experience. Because often many people come, they, you know, you have an experience, you go through the land, you're getting tour guides, you're, you're, you're learning a lot. But when it's not in an academic framework with, um, you know, uh, specific clear goals and outcomes and even tests and all those things, so then those things seem to kind of filter. The academic framework gives it really, solidifies it in the person's experience so that it's not just an experience that, like, is great and I feel great about it and I go on and say I had this amazing experience, but actually gives an intellectual component to it that that frames it and gives it much longer-lasting value. Yeah, such an important point, Alan. A lot of the Jewish educational frameworks that I was familiar with when I was in the States were supplementary Jewish education, and it didn't count, so students took it less seriously. In this case, and, and, and again, it's a shame to say that a student only needs uh, grades to make something count to make it serious, but the truth of the matter is I think we all, when we, when we know we're getting something out of it that counts – it leads us to take the experience more seriously, and we're more invested into it. You, you can often spot the must students in, in different places in Israel or even in Poland. They go to Poland, too, and I see them in Poland, and they're sitting around in a circle taking notes. 
all the kids are there sitting in a circle. Everybody has to take out their notebook and take notes about what's going on. And that, that's very powerful because they also come out with that at the end, a very concrete. Well, I don't know how many high school students in the States are getting a serious academic style education about Jewish history in a deep way and about Israel in a deep way. I feel like Jewish history in Israel become like stepchildren in Jewish education. It, it's important, but there's so many other texts and things that become central. And must is sort of, not a correction for that, but at least it's addressing high school kids and giving them that component that they're not getting in the States. In addition, they can also earn college credit from their studies here through the University of Miami. I think something else that Rabbi Kipper developed was the idea of having a home here in Israel, having a campus. And we've had our campus in Hoda Shalom for 40 years. Um, but it gives the students, rather than an on-the-bus, off-the-bus experience, where they really don't feel grounded in the land of Israel, in the state of Israel, so they, they really have a home in the state of Israel. They feel that coming home is coming back to Hod Sharon. They uh, strike up friendships and uh, relationships with people who live inside the village there. Um, and that really allows them to develop a sense of rootedness inside the land of Israel. How, how many students do you have about a year? Uh, about 1,000 students a year. And they stay for how long each each group? Different programs stay for different lengths of time. We have um, uh, two semester programs, one in the spring and one in the fall. They stay for about four months. We have a program with the Milken School in Los Angeles, which is also a semester program. Um, other day schools stay for three months approximately. And we have also travel programs that can last for four weeks or six weeks. It must be interesting that cross-pollination of students from different places interacting also. Every group has its own dynamics and has its own needs. Yeah, we see that. <laughs> now, you live in Shiloh, which is how far from Hodeshara? It's about an hour drive. Let's say 50 kilometers. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was. It, yeah, that shouldn't take. Why does it take so long to drive there? <laughs> the road. <laughs> Ways. Ways lies. <laughs> it's a. Uh, it takes about an, uh, 50 minutes to an hour, depending on traffic. Traffic is now getting worse uh, on all Israeli roads, I guess. But uh, I love living where I live, and I love working where I work. So it's a it's a reasonable trade-off. And why did you pick Shiloh? Shiloh is in the area of Samaria, so it's like really – I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a very old history connected to Northern the Jew- West Bank. It's the Northern West Bank. Yeah. yeah. And why, why did you choose to live there? Um, well, I was born and raised in Kentucky, and I figured I could find a place out there which I could be as redneck as I was when I was in the States, so it seemed to match up pretty well. Actually, we lived in, we lived in Yerushalayim for six years, and there's such a feeling of, of holiness, of Kedusha, living here in Yerushalayim. When we decided to move out of Yerushalayim, it was getting crowded, it was getting expensive. Um, so we were looking for a place that had a that feeling of Kedusha with it also. We didn't... I don't think we aimed ourselves at living over, over the Green Line in Yehuda and Shomron, but when we first visited Shiloh, we were impressed immediately by the by the chavra, by the society which is there, the, the warmth, the caring. It's a community in which there's a lot of learning going on, where there are amazing rabbis, where a lot of people who care about each other and make sure that uh, that we all succeed as a community. And, a plus, and of course, it was the first capital of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Um, there's, it's hard to describe this, the, the feeling of going out in, in your backyard and digging a hole to plant a tree and running into pieces of pottery from Jews that lived there two and 3,000 years ago. To know that when I'm walking in my community, I'm looking at hills that my 
ancestors looked at. There's a feeling of renewing an ancient Jewish community, which gives a, a fabric of meaning and uh, a sense of purpose in me- of just where you're living and where you're waking up in the morning. Belonging within a continuum also of culture. I, I don't know. You, why do you use the word capital? It was certainly a religious center, but I don't know that I would call it. In other words, when Shiloh was the religious center, it was still disparate tribes to a large extent. Certainly. It was, it was a... We're talking about the tabernacle, not the temple. Right. It was, right. A, it was a symbolic capital. It symbolized the unity of the Jewish people. It wasn't a governmental uh, capital in that sense, no. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds to me like I'm just trying to put the different parts of your life together that history plays a very important role in your uh, connection. Your, when you use the word holiness, that seems that there's like a tread of thread of history running there, there, feeling a connection to the past. And, and that, and just, just... No, I mean, absolutely. I don't think I was drawn to, to the teaching of history, the study of history by accident. I think it's something which probably informs my personal myth of, uh, of, where, of where I'm finding meaning in life. But uh, certainly that um, one of the reasons I find myself in, in the state of Israel at all is that uh, there haven't been all that many times in our past where there has been an independent Jewish state in the land of Israel. And for whatever merit we have from our fathers, who knows, maybe our merits from our children, um, we live in a period of time when, uh, when there is an independent Jewish state in the land of Israel. So to say it's a present that I feel both privileged and obligated to, um, to accept. As an educator, I've sort of come to the realization that I don't know how to say this clearly, so I'll just fumble it in my own sort of amateur language. I think that people don't think historically. In other words, they, their, their life experience is based on the events they were aware of in their lifetime, and then history is compartmentalized differently. And what you're describing for yourself, and I wonder if you encountered this difference with other people as an educator, for you that is not the case. In other words, the tabernacle being at Shiloh is resonant and relevant to you in a way that it wouldn't be, I think, to other people. Is that a fair observation psychologically of people? Do you get what what I'm saying? I'm saying it's sort of... Uh, Yeah, I get what you're saying. I think that, well, first of all, all the three of us are Hebrew uh, history teachers. Hebrew teachers, oh my God, how did that almost happen? How was it? Not at all. Having failed Hebrew. No, I know. I think we're wired a little differently. And I think, it, did you get what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm trying to articulate. So that, that for us, that, that, that's why I like picked on that with roommate. That really resonates for me because I also, I also feel that where I live down by, by Beit Gavrin in, a, in a, you know, an area that was very, very um, important during the first and second temples also. And same idea. You know, you could dig around. There's pottery everywhere. There's, you know, Bar Kokhba caves here on, in, in your backyard. And there's... And so that resonates for me, too. But I think you're right that most people actually don't think historically and put it into that. And actually, that's one of the struggles I find as a history teacher because I'm so passionate and love history. And to me, it makes just more sense to think chronologically in history and how that develops. And I also find that that's very hard for my students because they don't think that way. I mean, you have a percentage that do, and the, but the, for the most part, they don't. History is academic in a way that current events are, rel- as opposed to current events which feel more relevant to them. Nor is it functional as, as the hard sciences are. It kind of is the, uh, the poor stepchild of, mm-hmm. of, of academia. Why do you need history? I mean, yes, you can, you can impress people at cocktail parties, um, <laughs> but aside from that, what is, what is the use of knowing history? One of the first conversations we have in class is why would a person choose to learn history at all? And uh, it's interesting that most of the, I mean, the first thing that the students say, of course, is they, they quote George Santayana right. saying that those who do not learn history are doomed, are doomed to repeat it. 
if that were only if that were only so, but the thing is, I don't even think human beings are so smart as to learn from history, so as not to repeat it. Well, I also think most of us are not are not acting. I, I think that's a very true quote for you know leaders of nations. But I don't know. Sorry to interrupt, but I want to point out that's a negative quote. That's saying negatively. You have to learn history because, or else you'll mess up. Or else you'll mess up. As opposed to what I think the three of us are resonating here is that we actually relate to history as identity. And that's where, my students, that's where my students actually get to. I, I'm learning history because I'm learning more about myself. I'm, I'm connecting to something which is deep inside myself that I'm able to actualize through my learning of history. And there's no better place to do that than here. I mean, not not what 200 meters from here. There's a the graffiti on the wall underneath Robinson's Arch. Uh, isn't there? And, and, and uh, the archaeologists believe that was uh, someone who snuck into the ruins of Jerusalem after the destruction of the of the of the temple of the Beit Hamikdash, and etched that on the wall as a as a message of hope. For the future. Now, how could that man who is ancient living graffiti. ancient graffiti, all right? And who is he writing it for? Yeah. He's writing. He's writing it for us so that when we see it, we can connect it to the deep history of the Jewish people, which gives a sense of significance and meaning. Listen, we're old, all right? Older, yeah. older. Okay, at least. Uh, I, know, I know I'm old. By <laughs> you, comfortable with that? Uh, right. Fine. But even at our age, with the idea of. Um, uh, of imbuing life with meaning and significance is something which is a, uh, on, our, on our daily menu of things to do, something which uh, occupies our thoughts and our actions. And if so for us, how much more so for, for students that we have who are in high school or in post-high school who are quite concerned about building a life which, which is full of meaning. And oftentimes meaning is found perhaps in larger contexts rather than in smaller contexts. And sometimes history can provide the kind of a larger context for a person to see meaning through time. I think that for a lot of our students, connecting to stories in the Bible they feel is relevant, but they don't know how to put that on a timeline. In other words, for them it's largely stories of our antiquity that they connect to, which isn't exactly the same as having a historical relationship to our nation back for thousands of years. So that is, in other words, they... And part of that is because of the, the exile, right? The 2,000 years in exile. I mean, I, I often talk about this in Poland with my students. Like, I feel, you know, my family was hundreds of years in Poland. You know, I don't know exactly how long, but, and I, you know, deep roots there. So, like, what is that to my, my, my Polish? Is it to my identity? I mean... My and my family was much was longer much longer there than they were in Philadelphia, and I feel very strong in Philadelphia. And certainly, I, I don't know when the last time we were in Israel. So, like, I think that that's a disconnect that you're talking about. Yeah, and yet you feel more connected here. You feel more at home here than you did in Philadelphia. Yeah, and because of what I tell my students is that you know that's here is our I'll say very quickly, but here is our roots. And what what the Jewish people has managed to do was build tremendous branches. In, in the diaspora that are very strong and beautiful branches that have made part of our tree, but really to be rooted is to be rooted in, in Israel. And that's why I made and that's why I made Aliyah, and I'll just throw it there. And that's why I na- na- made my son Eli Mayer after my great grandfather from Poland, but added Yisrael to his name because he's the first kid born in Israel. Uh, after who knows when. So. Fans of the podcast, this is a collector's item, uh, <laughs> Allen biography episode. Uh, I, I guess, I guess what, I'm what I'm saying, saying? Like the, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but I think you guys would both agree with me that most American Jews feel the academic emotional connection as an, to Israel as an abstract, yeah. but feel much more at home in the States. What wires us differently? 
They, they, they live there. They live in the states. That's so did we. I'm pretty sure. I mean, unless they move Kentucky, it's in the states, right? That's what he's asking. Why do you think? Right, you're right. Listen, Louisiana. Louisiana. So, so, like Steve Stills, I'm very excited to say that. Like Steven Stills, you're from Louisiana, Kentucky, actually. But oh, it's, it's, it's close. Oh, sorry. It's, it's, it's the sorry. south. Um, it's, it's all, you know, I'm a northeasterner. <laughs> in our approach to teaching history, at least I can only speak from my class, the emphasis for teaching history is not an emphasis upon dates, um, on necessarily personalities or specific events, but rather on interpret, interpreting the story of Jewish history. Uh, I mean, the, the, um, the word history, and in French, histoire, which sounds like history, actually means a story or a narrative. So it's very important that we, for me, that my students are involved in understanding what the narrative of, the, of our history is so that they can place themselves inside of it on a personal level. There, you know, Reuven, you didn't have that education. What wired you differently that you, in other words, you're trying, you're trying to, through education, get your students to plug in the way you are, as a way, as opposed to the way most American Jews. I have absolutely no explanation for that. I cannot tell you why, having been raised in a family which was, I don't want to say divorced from Judaism, but I mean we were we were Christ, what we call Christmas tree reform. Yes, um, the. Uh, and really no connection to Israel whatsoever. Why the first time I came here, I felt an immediate connection to the land of Israel. I, my family is 200 years in Kentucky. You would think that if there's any holy land for me, it should be uh, it should be Kentucky. That when they run the Kentucky Derby and then, then that first horse comes out onto the on, onto the the racetrack at Churchill Downs, I, sh- I should be crying with emotion. For some reason, I never felt that. You could do a holy pilgrimage on the Bourbon Mile. <laughs> I could, and in fact, I do. Um, but it's, uh, I've never felt that kind of emotional attachment to the land of Kentucky as I did for the first time when I stepped foot in the land of Israel. And I can't, exp- I can't rationally explain that. I can't rationally explain why the first time I was here I felt as if I was a partial owner in this land. I know some of my students do feel that. I don't know whether it's something that we can explain rationally. So I'd like to push Michael on this one because you had a successful career as a as a teacher rabbi in in the United States in Cleveland. I was a teacher. A successful career as a teacher and rabbi in Cleveland. Rabbi's a teacher, and and uh, and so what pushed you after twenty years and in mid career? Uh, no. no, I'm with Ruven. For me, for me, I've known since eighth grade I wanted to live here. I have no idea why. I I, I, I I think to I, I think to So how do you teach the inexplicable? That's my issue. In other words, if we're wired this way, how do we get other people now maybe the answer is you can't. In other words and, and and but I do think there is something we can do to inspire a deeper sense of connection to history. I'm not even just talking about Israel here. I'm saying that when you, who was it? Uh, I don't know. I, okay, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I can't pronounce other languages. What's it? G O E T H E. Gerta. That sounds good. Didn't he? He said something yeah, like he's from Kentucky. He's got. He's yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. In Kentucky, yeah, they yeah. they talk good. Yeah. Uh, uh, but he said, if those of us who aren't living with the last three thousand years of history relevant to us are living hand to mouth. And I think, I think, by the way, I think there's a flip side to that, which is that if you think in, in, in terms of history, yeah, you also think in, you teach that. I don't know, but I just want to finish my point before we get to that question, which is you also think in the future in long term. In other words, I, I think people who live in democracies often think in four-year windows as opposed to totalitarian regimes, which will think in 50, 100, 200-year windows. And I think, I think it's part of Western thinking has become 
for many people from English-speaking countries, has become short history, short future. And I think as Jews, we're supposed to think long, deep history, long, deep future. What are we working towards as a long-term goal? I'm asking you guys. I can tell you how we, how we try to do that at MUS, oh. and that is to combine a, a very rigorous, in-depth intellectual experience in the classroom with an experiential experience in the field. And then combining those two, th- those two types of education to create a, 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 a total educational experience that will help the child, help the student um, adopt a Jewish narrative as their own narrative. Listen, to, to an extent, what we're doing at MUS is, is we're myth-making. We're, we're trying to take them, let's say, out of, the, out, out of the lenses in which they see the short-term, as you were saying, the short-term lenses that we see in the States where life is um, defined by... Uh, by chaos or by determinism, uh, that we live in a mechanical universe, and trying to find, help them interpret history, which makes meaning out of history, and also realize that their lives are also worthy of interpretation. If, if the only way they see their lives is in that short term of waking up in the morning and going to school and coming back from school and spending a few hours in front of the computer and doing their homework and doing the same thing over and over and over again, that's that's that's, that's, that's a description of life on a shot on a simple level. But a person isn't going to find meaning in doing and repeating that, um, that that regimen day after day after day. There's something more going on in their lives. We want them to interpret their lives, and we want them to interpret history. We want them to interpret the story of what's going on in our world so that they can find a meaningful place in it and to build a meaningful place in it. And doing that through through our history, through experience, and through, and through appealing to to their minds as well as their as well as their bodies helps them, I think, build a, an internal. Um, an internal intuition of their place inside of the Jewish people. You're using myth-making not as a negative, but as a positive. In other words, this, this sort of overarching story that makes your life have meaning. Right. Okay. In fact, I, I, was, I was thinking on, on the way in about living. When you mentioned living in a postmodernist world. Uh, one of the definitions of, uh, of, of postmodernism is living in a world in which there is no meta-narrative, no myth that provides um, transcendent meaning to the lives of individuals or, or, or to people. I think as a species, we're hungry for myth. We're hungry for a story that makes our lives make sense. Certainly, certainly. There's so much deconstruction that has gone on that we even deconstruct any identity so that the identity is only as meaningful as the last moment or the moment to come. That's like looking at a paragraph, though, and saying every single letter is meaningful. Every single letter is meaningful, but the letter itself isn't meaningful. You can't make anything of that letter. You can hardly make anything of that word. It's building a context of sentences, of paragraphs, of chapters, of a book in which a person can find meaning in the story that they're making. And I would argue when large groups from a certain area have a shared myth, that group that shares that myth and shares that land and language, that's a nation. Right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, you're, set, you're you're kind of arguing for what 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 constructs a nation, like because it is a, a social construct, I guess, right? Yeah, it's a social construct that's founded on these sort of terms of this shared meaning. In the states, becomes fragmented. Meaning becomes only as large as the individual, which is like looking at the individual letters. But when a person is connecting their meaning to a larger context, then uh, they're they're going to be making meaning, making myth, making making community. Look at the most, the most the deepest Jewish experiences that American Jews have, by and large, are in summer camps. And in summer camps, uh, 
I mean, everyone knows that the experience of summer camp is artificial. It's a bubble. But it also feels more like life than the other 10 months of the year. Why is that? Because I'm becoming part of a community. I'm sharing the same experiences, the same songs, uh, sometimes the same values with a group of peers that helps me create meaning in those two months that sometimes I don't feel the other 10 months of the year. I would argue that in American culture, part of the reason you're seeing such uh, political tension, such commun- you know, such division, is because they're, 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 you have different people seizing on different elements of the American myth and saying that's America instead of sharing it. So that you have one talking about the bootstraps, individualism, we build it, we make it, we own it, which is after all what they broke away from England for, right? A bunch of rich guys who don't want to pay their taxes. And then you have the other side, which is the the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. We're supposed to be inclusive, fighting for human dignity. And then and in these two visions, if you define them in isolation instead of uniting them as one deeper American vision, then you end up with parties at each other's throats. The idea of a nation, I think, is to create a, some sort of – is to blend the myths. Well, one could argue the same thing's happening in Israel for different reasons, but where we have various groups with various different Zionist narratives or non-Zionist narratives of what we're doing here. Yeah, I would argue that in Israel, our Zionist narratives have come closer together. We're doing a better job, I think, than America of uniting our shared myths, that we're in this together. Whether we def- more optimistic than me. <laughs> you know, when I was young... We're still, th- we're still at the beginning of the, of the yeah. road, though, in this country. But, <laughs> but even, even so, I'm talking with one of my fellow teachers who is, who, is very, who is very left-wing and very liberal. And he's speaking to this wild-eyed, redneck, gun-waving settler from Shiloh, as I am. And we're going to disagree. He's going to disagree not just on, the, on the, the wisdom of what I'm doing, but even the morality of what I'm doing. And, and I, can, I can argue the same way back to him. But at the end of the discussion, we both know that my children, actually my grandchildren and his children, are going to be serving in the same army and we're part of the same society. So even though we're disagreeing on things that are very, very basic, we also know And important, like, like, like really at the root level, important. Absolutely. Fundamental issues. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, as we would say, as the, the mythical issues, okay? <laughs> but, I think, but I think that there's an over-myth that unites it together. It's not just, it is that you're going to serve in the army together, but it's also that you're part of the same endeavor. You're just having radical disagreements about how best to conduct it. And that used to be – when I was young, I would watch American politics. You know, Reagan would go for drinks with Tip O'Neill at the end of a day after fighting brutally over their issues. But they understood what united them. And I think – and I would look at Israeli politics and say, oh, Israel needs what we have here. And I think the roles have actually – in my personal – you know, no, just my own vision, I think the roles have flipped. I think in Israel you have it much more, that the disagreements are still visceral. But there's a sense of we're in the same boat here. Uh, it may have something to do with the second intifada. Well, I and I think also the the challenge then of our day isn't so much – I mean it is, still is and will always be creating the common myth here in Israel. But we've seen over this past year that the challenge facing our people is creating a, a, a common myth with the Jews in America, with the Jews mm-hmm. outside of the state of Israel. Yeah, that's a real challenge that we're seeing today where we're not sharing our myths with diaspora Jews. Uh, I, I, I'm not, not going dis- to disagree with you guys. I, I agree with it. I agree with it to some degree. I also think that the polarization in Israeli society may be a little bit more distinct than sometimes in our Anglo bubble. Like, uh, I don't know, your, your teachers in there are probably Anglo like us, and we seem we, we've, we've because we've made this decision that we were talking about earlier. All to come, there's sort of more. Um, but I think that you know it, it is true that the, the shared sense of uh, outside enemy also. 
makes things uh, unfortunately. Look, I'll tell you, within Israel, we, we we do we are in different bubbles. You know, Medinat Tel Aviv and the north and the and you know the Anglo world and the. But I find here's my personal experience. Maybe the rhetoric here can be much much worse than nasty. In, 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 I don't know that it's worse than America today. I think America used to be civil, and now it is not. That that may be very true. So uh, we agree. Yeah, <laughs> this is a boring episode. We're all agreeing. Darn it! Vietnam. I tell you that the, <laughs> it wasn't so civil back then in the 1960s at all. No, it was not. Or the or under Nixon, you know, through the 70s. Certainly. Yeah. Um, that you were gonna. What was I going to say? I don't know something about uh, the rhetoric here versus the rhetoric there and how it's changed. But okay, look again. I just th- I just think that oh, I don't, bubbles. I, don't, I guess I don't. No, you brought up. We do live in different bubbles. But my experience, just as an anecdotal observation, is that when you cross a bubble, the other person in the other bubble. Let's so I'm let's say I'm in I'm in a I'm in a coffee shop in Tel Aviv and I'm with there my keeper and I and I stick out. And you're a settler. Yeah. And you're a settler. Yeah. Okay, I don't have a gun, but I'm still a settler from the West Bank. I also like looking out my window and seeing the fields where, where King David probably, you know, walked his sheep because yeah. I live right outside Bethlehem. But but uh, but the person I'm talking to is going out of their way to show me I'm not the kind of person who's going to disrespect you because we're different. And I catch myself doing the same thing that that I've noticed from Israelis this need to show Look, I know we're different in this political difference, but you're, you know, we're brothers and sisters. And we're not, you know, oh, feel comfortable. Feel com- They're going out of their way to treat me. I- I'm not a bigot. I'm not a, I'm not a, have you experienced that also? I, I, I experienced that not infrequently, that people are going out of their way to show me that although we clearly disagree based on our demographics, they feel a sense of connection. Uh, yeah, I, I guess mostly there's a more look. There is more shared sense here in that way. I think you're saying like what you're saying, but um, again, just what you know uh, in in the protest rallies that are going on and the high-ended rhetoric about that they use and the words they use about traitors and all those kinds of things. But I don't want to be, I don't want to beat the point. But I just uh, I just want to. Well, make I don't want to be Pollyannish, yeah. but I do. I don't want to be cynical either. One hundred percent. That's I'm just trying to. Yeah. Make make that medium road between understanding that there is something that binds us maybe here more and gives us a more sense. On the other hand, we have serious rifts here that need to be also figured out. But that's supposed to be in a democracy, right? You wouldn't. I don't think there's any other model. I don't think there's a model where everyone agrees. In the, in the same way that there are conflicting myths of what it means to be an American, there are conflicting myths on a very basic level about what it means to be Israeli. Are we are we here to become? A nation like any other nation. Are we here to bring the Mashiach? Are we here to defend ourselves against the ever-present scourge of anti-Semitism? Well, what are, what are, are we, we here to create a socialist utopia based on Marx, Marx, you know, Marxist principles? Right, exactly. Um, but as I said, we're still at the beginning of, of – of, I don't even know whether that can be resolved. I don't even know there should be resolved. Perhaps you're right. Perhaps it's the, it's the, uh, that's the basis of a, of a thriving democracy is to have those conversations, to have that tension in society. What does it mean to be an Israeli? What does it mean to be a Jew? Look, Nachum Sarno used to point out that, that we are the only people – and I would assume he knows because I don't know. But we're the only people who takes our holiest text, the Torah, our ancient text, and prints it – with people arguing about what it's saying on the same, like you have six people on that page yelling at each other about what the text is actually saying. So democracy shouldn't be, we didn't invent it, the Greeks did, but it fits within our Jewish way of looking at how society should live together, which is not by all agree, but by respectfully 
arguing to get to a shared truth because truth is too multifaceted for any one perspective to to catch it. Dates back to Avraham and, uh, and, and Hashem arguing about the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. Well, this was a pretty big idea episode. It was, it was. Yeah. We have to have Ruvain back more. Yeah, for sure. Uh, thanks, Mike. Thank you, Alan. And Ruvain, thank you so much. Again, thank you for the schlep. And if we could have you more, and I'm not just saying that because maybe you can bring me some of your home <laughs> distilled bur- home brewed bourbon. I'm not saying. I promise that's not. I really. I think this is. I, I really enjoy you know yeah. these types of conversations. And maybe next time we could have a, like smaller scale or bigger or whatever. Let's just see where it goes. That sounds great. That was a wonderful morning. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Jerusalem U podcast, the Teachers Lounge. Teachers Lounge is produced by Matthew Lipman. You can subscribe to our podcast pretty much anywhere where you can find any podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. And we'd really appreciate if you would give us feedback and ratings in those places and recommend it to your friends. Thanks. Bye-bye.